you've got a Bible, you might want to start turning to the Gospel of John. We're going to be reading chapter 13, John's Gospel, chapter 13. And we're going to be reading verses 1 to 17, John 13, verses 1 to 17. So good morning, everybody. Um, Welcome, if you're a visitor here, uh, you are especially welcome this morning. My name's Raj. Um, And so we're continuing in our series, um, sermon series, the Gospel of John. Um, I've been loving getting into this book, Um, um, a book I think that Martin Luther once said that if he was on a desert island, he would take two books with, if if he had to take only two books of the Bible, it would be Romans and the Gospel of John. Yeah, he valued it um, that much. Um, And so this book is really an amazing insight into the life and mission of Jesus, a window, if you like, uh, into the person of Christ, the very reality of God himself. That's a big thing to contemplate, really, as you read your Bibles. Is that how you read your Bible? Do you realize that? It's a window into the very person of God. And so, as we've been moving through um, uh, this gospel, the gospel of John, we've reached chapter 13. And so, as Gavin said, and as that short film we played not too long ago said, here at John 13, we have a gear shift from the first part of this book. So far, we've been looking, haven't we, at the many signs and encounters and miracles of Jesus as he reveals who he is and what he's about, what he's about, his mission. And the mother of all, if you like, the mother of all these signs uh, that we heard Gavin brilliantly talk about the other week uh, was the raising of Jesus' dead friend, Lazarus. This was a miracle that would ultimately cost Jesus' life as he entered into Jerusalem um, um, for his final days before the cross. That's the gear shift. That's what happens in John, in John 13. And so now from John 13 to 17, we zoom in, if you like. We come up close and watch Jesus giving his disciples his final words as he prepares them for his death and what life will look like on the other side of his resurrection and ascension to heaven. This is intimate. This is precious. This is detailed. This is like big brother, but better. I'm not sure that's a great analogy. And so this morning, Jesus demonstrates in his first of his final words, um, the crucial part that humility and obedience plays when it comes to the kingdom plans of God. Humility and obedience. And so let's read it, shall we? Let's read. We're going to read John 13, 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them 
with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to really wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later, Peter, you'll understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but wash my hands and head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though, ne- though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. He's talking about Judas. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And he said this, Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should uh, um, wash your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these intimate words. Thank you, Lord, for this open window into the depths of God. Um, We behold you this morning, Lord. We behold your risen glory. But actually, as we see you in the Scriptures, as we see your humility and your vulnerability and your love for us, Lord, let it lift our hearts. Let it send us out. Let it do something in us, Lord, that transforms and changes us. We believe that your words speak life into us. We believe that your words speak action into us. We believe that your words bring joy and purpose to our lives. And we ask that this morning as we unpack your word. I pray, Lord God, that it does those things in our lives, in Jesus' name, for your glory and for the good of us and those around us. Amen. So, humility and obedience. What did John, this is about John, this is about John writing something because suddenly he had revelation and he had to put it down. What did John see in Jesus that provoked him to write these words to us? So firstly, I've just picked a few things out really. Firstly, I think he wanted us to see that Jesus was guided by his Father in heaven. You see, John saw something that night That was different. I don't know if you've noticed. He saw the shift that we've been talking about. He noticed the gear change. Up until now, you see, Jesus was always saying his hour had not yet come. That's what he kept on saying time at time at time at time and time again after he encountered different people after his signs. The time is not right. My time has not come. My hour has not come. That he was not ready yet to be handed over to the Sanhedrin or to Rome for the final showdown. But then suddenly, verse 1 shocked John. It got his ears pricked. It was just before Passover festival. Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. How did he know? 
What was Jesus' blueprint for action? What caused the gear shift? But you know what? John got it that night. He realized what happened. You see, earlier in John 10, he remembers that after rebuking his misplaced, uh, after rebuking the disciples' misplaced faith, Jesus says to them, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. John remembered that as Jesus fed the 5,000, he looked up to heaven and unleashed the miraculous power of God, didn't he? He remembered how Jesus taught them how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You see, Jesus always submitted himself to his Father. That's how, he, that's how he knew what to do next. Actually, he was teaching them all along to do the same thing. He was modeling something about this triune, beautiful God. John tells us in John 16, how, um, what, uh, he, Jesus said, In that day you will no longer ask me anything after I've gone. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask on behalf of your Father. No, the Father himself loves you. There are no barriers now between us and God. And do you believe that is true for us? I loved Gavin's uh, elder's letter the other day about how, he, how God spoke to him through Ikea flat packs. Well, I assume it was Ikea. <clears throat> how rather than asking for help and direction, he would plod on, getting more and more exasperated, trying to put all the, his bits of furniture together. I don't understand that at all because I find it really easy. Because um, I'm very DIY, as most of you know. But how he kept on getting exasperated. Uh, how often, uh, and, 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 and how he found it so difficult. How, I guess there's a question here, isn't it? How often do we plod on without asking God? That's what he said in his elders' letter. How often do we make decisions without God, Jubilee? This life, Jubilee, is our training ground. Do we see it as that? Or do we just see it as a random set of events that sometimes are good or sometimes are bad? No, this life is our training ground. I don't always, I, I, I don't always think we see it that way. In all its complexities and hardship and joy and suffering and setbacks, I don't know what's happening with Rob in hospital, but we're going to pray for him. We're going to pray for his miraculous healing. God knows what he's doing, grappling with the ups and downs of singleness and marriage and parenting. These are other things that God is training us in, stepping out in service and giving and generosity. God is shaping us jubilee and making us holy and pure and fit for purpose through our Bible reading, through forgiveness, through sticking with it and not bailing out, perseverance, through prayer, through community, through the gospel, through all of this, the gospel of God is molding us. God is molding us and chiseling out something beautiful. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I want to encourage you this week. It's what I used to do, um, and occasionally still do. 
I want to encourage you this week, grab a sheet of paper, maybe on Monday, or put a reminder on your phone every day, or stick it to your work desktop or the mirror when you br- where, wherever you brush your teeth in the morning. I'm sh- supposing you brush your teeth every morning. Our kids usually do. And write it in bold capitals. Listen to the Father today. And in everything you do and say, train yourself till it becomes subconscious. The new you to follow him fully. fully. Listen to your father today and watch how it changes your life. Will you consider doing that this week? Humility and obedience is about following the father, knowing that he is good and he is right no matter what it seems like. Secondly, John saw in Jesus, I think, a security within the Godhead that motivated him to step out. John saw who Jesus really was. You see, without a firm security in who we are, humility and obedience will always fail. We we need to know uh, we're in Christ. When you're confident in God, you know what? You don't need the prayers and head-tapping of others. When you're secure in Christ... His values pip any other perks of serving Him. We love and obey Jesus and are humble before Him because of Him and only because of Him. Do you see that? Our actions are not for personal gain or superiority. Our failures don't condemn us anymore because we know that our Father in heaven, God, loves us. Jesus knew and experienced that from the very beginning of time in the Godhead. Madonna, the 1980s queen of pop, once said, I have the same goal I had since I was a little girl. I want to rule the world. To me, the whole process of being a brushstroke in someone else's painting is too difficult. John knew this himself, the writer of this book. He shared Madonna's unbridled passion to take center stage. He struggled with anyone letting, um, anybody letting even God hold the paintbrush of his life. He tried to negotiate with Jesus, didn't he? Remember, let one of us sit at your right, Jesus, and and the other on your left in all your glory. We want to be your big cheeses, Jesus. We want to rule the world. But that night, John saw who Jesus really was. Verse 3 to 4, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up and washed their feet. None of the disciples had been willing to do such a lowly job because they were jockeying for position and power and respect out of a heart that was sinful, proud, and insecure. But John saw in an amazing display of compassion, intimacy, and humility that Jesus refused to grab the paintbrush from his father's hand to paint his own path to glory. Jesus was so saturated with his father's love that he knew even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his, al- give his life as a ransom for many. This is so important. This is one of the greatest battles, I think, 
we have as Christians, living out this truth and promise over us that we are in Christ. It's such a fundamental um, um, reality, secure and confident that we are sons and daughters of the living God. Not after, not after we've got it all together, but while we were deeply embroiled in all of our sin and despair and rebellion, God loved us and he showed that love to us. This is the solid ground on which we stand, Jubilee, the platform from which we jump into action. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are the ones chosen by God. Do you receive that? But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do His work and speak out for Him to tell others of the night and day difference He made for you, from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. You know what Madonna did see? Uh, something of her insecurity in the end. She said this, or she wrote this, I have an iron will and all my life, oh, and all my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Jubilee, in Christ, hear this, in Christ we are not mediocre. We are sons and daughters loved and cherished by God. Humility and obedience can only flourish in that kind of security and confidence and truth. It's the soil in which that kind of characteristic from God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can grow and flourish and change others. Thirdly, Jesus cleanses us. I think that's what John saw that night again. That night John truly saw who he really was before this Jesus, God-man. John saw that if Jesus, God himself, had to stoop so low to wash their feet, the dirt in them must have been really deep. The chasm between him and God was uncrossable. Unless, Jesus said this, didn't he? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It was essential. But that night, John got it. We see that in Revelation 1, don't we? In the rest of Revelation, as it unpacks, Revelation 1.17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, John. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive forever and ever and ever. One of my favorite paintings is this one. And it's called The Creation of Adam on the ceiling of the Vatican Sistine Chapel in Rome. It took four years to finish. Four years of intense, grueling labor by Michelangelo. 
The physical demands of having to stand on scaffolding, if you can imagine it, painting above his head was torture. In fact, one night exhausted by his work, um, alone in his, with his doubts, discouraged by a project that he felt was too great for him, he wrote in his journal a single sentence, I am no painter. Michelangelo. Yet amazingly, this painting has spoken to millions of people over half a millennium. But what's it showing us? Let's look at it closer. It shows us something very unique, unseen really until paintings up till then. In this painting, the figure of God on the right is painted as someone who is going out of his way to reach out to Adam. If you look closely, God is twisting his body to move it as close to Adam as possible. His head is turned towards Adam. His gaze is fixed on him. God's arm is stretched out. Um, his finger extended straight forward. Every muscle in his body is taut. The, the, the God, this God is rushing forward to Adam on a cloud of the chariots of heaven propelled by angels. What is Michelangelo trying to get across to us. What does he want us to see here? I'll tell you what he wants us to see. He's impressing on us that even in the midst of all the splendor and all the wonder of all creation, this isn't the main thing that's captivating our God. No way. Rather, his entire being is wrapped up in his one and only desire to close the gap between himself and Adam Humanity, you and me. He can't wait. That's what Michelangelo is trying to get us to see here. God's hand comes to within a hairbreadth of Adam's hand. He is offering Adam life, life to the full, life with God. But get this. Having come so close, he doesn't force himself on Adam. No. That's not God's style. He allows Adam just a little space to choose. He wants Adam to love him because he loves him and know the reason. He waits for Adam to make his move. He gives him the dignity and the space to make his own choice. One critic, uh, one art critic writes of this uh, fresco, all of man's potential, physical and spiritual, is contained in this one timeless moment will Adam invite God in Romans 5 8 to 9 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us and then later on it says saved from the wrath of God through him that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's celebrated throughout the world, throughout history. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be thinking, I don't like that word wrath. Sounds a bit scary and fiery to me. But no, it's once again here deliberately because it's depicting love like no other. The love of God like you no other. You see, God's wrath isn't just God having a bad day like you and me. It's not like, it's not like you know, Raj in a mood. 
No, the wrath of God is God's just and righteous opposition to injustice, all evil, all wrongdoing, and all sin. The English air playwright Somerset Morgan wrote, if I wrote down every thought I ever, I've ever thought and every deed I'd ever done, men would call me a monster of depravity. That's all of us in this room, if we're honest. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, very famously, all have sinned and fall short of God's, God's glory. The chasm between us and God. Even Jesus said in Mark 7, it's what comes out of a person that pollutes obscenities, lusts, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, depravity, deceptive dealings, mean looks, slander, arrogance, foolishness. I think that probably includes most of us here. All these are vomit from the heart, says Jesus. A heart that is in rebellion towards God. That's what sin is. But hear this. While we were in that rebellion and sin, he took the wrath and the punishment, the condemnation that was owing to us so that we might go free to please Him and do His will. That's what Jill said, didn't she? That's justice. That's grace. That's the joy news of Jesus. Not our doing, not a consequence of all of our hard work or effort like other beliefs and religions might tell you. No, this is different. This is not religion. This is grace. Totally amazing. This is undeserved. This is the unmerited favor of God who is besotted by us. You, me, who, does, who goes out of his way to draw us all in. Where's your hand? That's what humbles Peter to obedience in verse 9, doesn't it? Then, Lord, Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and head as well. He's all big mouth. As I was writing this, I felt God needed some of you to hear that you're not just forgiven, and this is a bit serious, but I feel God wants to say that you're not just forgiven, but you are clean. You are cleansed by God. As a GP, I often come face to face with men and women who've been abused, often in childhood or adolescence, often by someone who they should have been able to trust to take care of them and look after them. And often, they, they, as they would unpack this and disclose them to me as they were in tears and in anger, the first thing they would often say I did after the incident was to go and have a bath or a shower. They wanted to be clean again. And often no amount of soap would do it. I just feel there's, there's people in this room today. It's serious, isn't it? But with a congregation this big, there are people in this room this very day who carry the shame and the scars and of, of what you see as the filth of the past. And you know what? It can shape you. It can define you. It can hold you back. But listen... Listen, the truth is this. Not only does God forgive us, but he cleanses us. He brings about a purity that we could never imagine. A beautiful, spotless bride. It's real. And some of you in this room really need to hear that this morning. God, on the cross, his victory has made that real for you. 
Lamentations 4.7 Her princes and princesses were purer than the snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Psalm 51.7 Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 10 says, And you are clean. And you are clean. And you are clean. Jesus cleanses you through and through. Hear that jubilee. He adores you. Finally, Jesus commissions the church. See verse 12, it says, Do you not understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That night, John saw true greatness was being redefined, turned on its head, if you like, by the King of Heaven. If such lowly work was not beneath Jesus, their Lord and Rabbi, then how could, how could he refuse to follow Jesus' lead as a slave to others? God alone must hold the paintbrush jubilee and paint whatever colors he chooses in your life, John's life, my canvas. And that's exactly what we see, don't we, John, as we read Acts. John was transformed in Acts 2 to 4. John serves Peter's lead as the early church kicks off in John 8. John would serve the Samaritans, who he previously would have despised as the gospel spread wider in Acts 12. Uh, John continues to serve God's sovereign plan even after his brother is executed by King Herod. And after that, he seems to fade away in the background of Acts, but no doubt serving God diligently John acted John acted John did something faith without action is dead see verse 17 now that you know these things you will be blessed if you do them what is it that triggers the power of God not knowledge not belief according to that line but loving obedience. Loving obedience. We heard a bit about that this morning, didn't we? The Apostle Paul calls it in Romans 1.5, the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. All of that is important. Judas knew these things about Jesus, but he wasn't changed, as the rest of John 13 tells us. Peter was a loudmouth who eventually was silenced by his three denials of Jesus before his Messiah's crucifixion. John wants us to see once again that it is loving obedience that triggers God's power. Not just knowledge, not just loud verbal professions of faith. It doesn't matter how loudly we sing worship songs or prophesy or speak in tongues or have leadership badges. 
It doesn't matter how strongly we can debate theology or no theology or talk of plans for global mission and Teesside mission and being generous. If we don't put Jesus' teaching into practice, then our words, Jubilee, are empty chatter. Later on in John 14, it says, If you love me, show it by doing what I've told you. The person who knows my commandments and keeps them, that's who loves me. Not loving me means not keeping my words. These are depthy words from the, vo- from the mouth of our Messiah, from the mouth of our Lord and Savior. How do we get the power and the motivation to do this? How do we love others who see us as unattractive? How do we serve those who regard uh, who, we re- who we might regard as undeserving? How do we give our lives to those we un- inwardly might despise? How do we get out over our prejudices and narrow-mindedness towards others? How do we freely open our homes, our lives and heart to others? How do we continue to give generously and um, graciously? Answer, Jesus. Answer, Jesus doesn't give us a concept here, does he? Jesus doesn't get out a blackboard and says, these are the five points to obedience and humility. Jesus doesn't actually even really tell them much. What does he do? He shows them. He shows them. He washes their feet. Jesus doesn't motivate them by guilt, but by grace. Amazing grace. And this picture of Jesus washing their feet is a picture declaring that beautiful, glorious truth. How do you get the power to to obey? You look at Jesus. This is what Ezekiel was prophetically speaking of uh, when he burst forth with these life-giving words to God's people. He said, On that day you were born, you were not washed with water to make you clean. No one looked on you with pity or, or had compassion. You were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I clothed you with an embroidered dress. I covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. That's what, the, that's, what the, that's what Jesus, the King of Heaven, was showing them as He stooped into their filth and grime and mess. His hour, Jubilee, had now come. On the cross, He would take all our filth and shame and exchange it for His beauty and purity. On the cross, He would stoop His head low so that we could lift our heads high. On the cross, he humbled himself, unimaginably obedient to his Father, so that we could take on his righteousness and standing before God, forgiven, sealed with the Spirit. Jubilee, do you want this power? Do you want this power? Do you want true greatness? Then look at Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, go and do likewise. If the band could come up. 
Jesus said, Now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Let's pray. Let's stand. Uh, let, no, actually, stay, stay where you are. Do what you like. <laughs> yeah, Lord, I thank you for these words. I thank you for this picture, this real picture declaring the grace and mercy of God. I thank you, Lord, that you showed us your compassion. You showed us your love. You showed us that you were willing to get into our filth and grime and dirt so that we could be the bride of beautiful bride of Christ. And I pray, Lord God, for those here who might still have scars and dirt from the past. I pray, Lord God, that people see the righteousness of God in them. I pray that they will be seen as spotless, pure, white as snow. I pray, Lord God, that this will not hold them back, but actually from this day on, they will be free to put their sails up high and be taken on a journey with God with nothing holding them back. I pray for people who don't know Jesus here this morning. I pray that they would recognize that, put themselves in the place of Peter and realize Jesus comes and washes their feet too. That Jesus comes to them in all of their skepticalness and possibly sin and possibly shame. And I pray, Lord God, that you will lift their head high and that you will show yourself to them. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.